Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today we're going to talk about innovation. I live in the Bay Area, and innovation is kind of like the thing that we worship. Um, If you go to any sort of business, they will talk about how they need to innovate. Even in people's personal lives, we are always looking for the latest smart thing that will let us, you know, change things. Not just change things in, in a minor incremental way, but change things drastically. We're expecting, you know, to wake up one morning and for everything to be completely and utterly different because of some new gadget. I mean, just look at any Bay Area company and you will find the words innovation, creativity, eventivus, and the big one, disruption. Um, A great example of this is probably the patron saint of, of the Bay Area, Steve Jobs. And that moment when he becomes the patron saint, that apotheosis, his greatest miracle, when he steps out on stage of the Apple keynote of whatever year it was and announces the iPhone. And here is the greatest symbol of this particular idea of what innovation is. You have a man who's announcing a particular new kind of technology that is not just technologically innovative, but also has marketing, style, panache, and in just like an instant, it changes the world. This narrative shows this one moment of Steve Jobs holding up the iPhone and showing that it works, creating an entire new industry that then makes everybody's lives completely different. Maybe the godfather of this idea is an economist named Joseph Schumpeter. And for Schumpeter, when he's looking at the history of economic growth, he thinks that one of the biggest, most important things is development through innovation. Without innovation, what he called creative destruction, the economy is just trapped in what he calls a circular flow, which is the regular uh, you know, patterns of consumption and production. I know that there's a bunch of people in the village who will need, you know, 10 bushels of grain, and so I farm 10 bushels of grain, and then when harvest time comes, I get 10 bushels of grain, and I sell 10 bushels of grain year after year after year after year. For him, the big change is innovation. Um, The big story is that inventions like trains and chemical factories and the rise of electric technology and cars all cause these new kinds of of, uh, industries to pop up which spur economic growth, that make the economy grow much faster than it ever would before. The converse of that is uh, that you get a concomitant depression. So in Schumpeter's model, you get innovation that uh, fuels economic booms because you get new kinds of things that producers can make, which allows uh, people to get better returns on investment, which means more economic activity, which means more stuff. But after a while, the returns on this investment peter out and you start to get back into the state of circular flow and then people overinvest and then you have a depression. This should be familiar to us. This is a little bit of what we see the evolution of the modern world as. This is Steve Jobs showing the iPhone and changing the world, and then everybody getting smartphones, and then us waiting for the next big thing. His heroes, the heroes of this story, are entrepreneurs and also the bankers who fund them. 
These entrepreneurs in Schumpeter's story are Nietzschean, willful, creative people who invent things out of whole cloth, who see the future and are brave enough to make it. And very importantly for Schumpeter, they are not motivated purely by economic gains. If they were motivated by purely economic gains, they wouldn't do the risky stuff that innovation demands. If they were motivated by, you know, any sort of hedonism, instead of, you know, uh, striving so hard and so long to make light bulbs uh, like Edison did, uh, they would just relax in a government job and get food and have parties and have children and have mistresses. For him, entrepreneurs are less of capitalists who are trying to get a ton of money and more like knights errant who are striving to create new kinds of honor and glory for themselves because they can't go out and conquer cities then they conquered the economy because they can't go out and discover new worlds they discover new things about science and technology because they can't dominate the people around them by swords and you know by uh, uh, armor and by flags they dominate the people around them by making businesses and you know getting up on stages and presenting new pieces of technology they are this old style heroic chivalric uh kind of honorable men who are striving for glory and power but not wealth necessarily but there's a problem from Schumpeter, and remember that Schumpeter's writing in 1911 when he writes this, which is the time of the rise of the big businesses in Germany and uh, U.S., these big businesses that seem to be going against the kind of small market uh, interaction that the political economists of the classical period thought capitalism was. These big businesses don't act like, you know, the, the entrepreneurial businesses Schumpeter's looking at. They don't struggle and strive for new things. They are kind of locked in to one kind of productive element. They consciously resist the kind of creative destruction that allows things like the internal combustion engine to change the world. There are companies like GE that were once innovative, but now just kind of make fridges for grandparents and you know, aren't entirely exciting. The problem from the, the story of Schumpeter is that the rise of capitalism through this constant development in the end destroys capitalism by forcing people to always make these kinds of rational economic decisions that are, you know, contradictory to the honorable struggle that entrepreneurs need to do to actually be entrepreneurs. In the end, for the Schumpeterian story, you get this world of careful, rational bureaucrats who resist the honorable, artistic striving of the entrepreneur. Of course, the Schumpeterian story has not yet come, I don't think. We still get disruptive innovations, and I don't know what he would think now about uh, the Bay Area story where you get businesses that enshrine as part of their DNA the idea of continuous disruption. If you walk into any tech company, you will see on the posters, on the training manuals, you know, on the lips of the people in the lunchrooms, the idea that what they're doing is moving fast and breaking things. Uh, they understand that if they solidify into a single business model, then they will fail. That they are in the business of constantly disrupting things. Whether this is true or not is another story. So the question is, 
is the Schumpeterian story of innovation the way that innovation actually works? And even though it's very compelling, even though it's probably the way that we think about innovation and invention, I think that it's not really historically accurate for a couple reasons. The first is that it ignores the way that innovations actually come to market. In the history of technology, something that's really peculiar is that these grand inventions that they talk about in textbooks are often kind of not very good, and for them to actually become useful requires years and years and years of other people tinkering on the innovations to make them, you know, fit marketplaces and fit the actual pace of work. A couple examples will suffice for this. The steam engine, for instance, was first invented in the early 18th century by Thomas Newcomen, but it was incredibly inefficient. And so that meant that it was just kind of a scientific curiosity and was only used in industry right on coal fields to pump water out of coal mines. And while this was helpful for continuing a cheap supply of coal for the British Industrial Revolution, it was really, really limited. It took about 70 years for James Watt to come along and uh, improve the steam engine, you know, just a little bit more for people to actually start to think about ways of using it outside of the coal fields. And even then, Watt had a patent on his steam engine and wouldn't let people experiment with high-pressure uh, steam engines. And so it took until the patent on Watt's steam engine lapsed in the 1800s for people to actually make really useful steam engines that would work in uh, locomotives and steamships and factories and stuff. So here you have a story genius man invents a genius thing, but it takes about 120 years for this genius thing to actually make its way into the kinds of technology that we think of when we think of that tool. Similarly for the story of the iPhone. Sure, that moment when Steve Jobs steps out with the iPhone and accepts a call and plays music and does whatever is a big marker in the history of technology. But the iPhone was not the iPhone that we have today. The iPhone that Steve Jobs used was clunky, it broke down all the time, and it was not entirely useful. It took years of app developers to make this large ecosystem of useful tools for this new technology for the iPhone and the smartphones that followed after it to actually be useful. And it also ignores the way that when new technologies are imported to other places, that we get constant innovation unintentionally. A great story about this is the story of the Japanese post office. And before we jump into that, just a little bit of background about 19th century Japanese history. Uh, for about 200 years, Japan had been closed off to the outside world. They only allowed uh, Dutch and Chinese traders in small parts of the country. But in the middle of the 19th century, a dude named Commodore Perry came and forcibly opened the Japanese economy to outsiders. This resulted in a political revolution that we know as the Meiji Restoration. Um, and in the Meiji Restoration, you got a lot of bureaucrats and uh, civil servants who tried to reorganize Japanese government and uh, the economy along the lines of Westerners. And one of these uh, attempts to uh, reform Japanese organization came in the post office. 
The founder of the Japanese post office is a guy named Mejima Hisoka, and he worked in the tax office, and he was tasked with modernizing the Japanese postal system. Um, and he was a good person to do this because he uh, spoke English, uh, he studied navigation, math, uh, military techniques, and Dutch medicine when he was a young adult. Um, and when he was traveling around Japan, uh, he was really troubled by the fact that he could not communicate with his family very well. There were only a couple postal routes between the big cities, and he'd be gone for years at a time and not know what was happening back home. So, when he was the head of the new post office, he set a bunch of Western reforms. Uh, he made this system in which people could send mail for postage stamps. Everybody would have public access to the post, not just government officials and business. Um, that people would go to post offices and put mail, the stamped mail, in postal boxes, and that the mail would get delivered on a regular schedule. And then being done, he said, okay, great guys, let's expand the postal system from these routes. And in 1871, he went off to England to negotiate a railway loan. And while he was there, he got even more obsessed about the British post office. He went to England on a mail steamer, uh, these steamships that carried mail between the different ports, and he there on the mail steamer was obsessed about the system of mails, and he would talk with the mailman you know, every single day about the British postal system. And when he was in England, this did not stop. Whenever he had time off, he would go to the post office and talk to people about the postal system. He set up a uh, postal savings account. Um, he got an extra large picture of the founder of the British post office, Sir Rowland Hill. And when he was having difficulties, it is, you know, said in the, in the literature that he would look at this portrait of Rowland Hill to inspire him. He was obsessed. He was a post office fanboy. And when he went back to Japan, he was troubled by the way that the post office had developed, or not yet developed. He basically took over the post office again and instituted the British model out of whole cloth, copying and pasting a ton of regulations from the British post office and importing them into the Japanese post office. Um, it was, you know, almost a one-to-one -one shift. But there was a problem, of course, because Japan was not Britain, even though they were both islands, and he had to make all of these unintentional changes. A big one was that in Britain, all the mail was carried by railroads, whereas in Japan, there were no railroads. That's why Meijima was going to England to negotiate a railway loan. And so they had to make this kind of modern post office with tons of routes that went everywhere and that you could send a letter to at a fixed price and there were fixed schedules. He had to do that with what we would think of as early modern technology. The mail originally was sent by horse-drawn carriage and, for shorter distances, traditional runners. Uh, this group of information uh, senders who would basically just run messages from pla one place to another. And similarly, uh, Meijima worked with Japanese cultural styles to make the post office into its own thing. In the British post office system, you had two different kinds of post offices. You had specialized post offices, and then you'd often have subcontractors uh, who would take the post in um, at their place of business. These play people were like uh, innkeepers or tradesmen who just wanted to drum up a little more trade. 
In the Japanese context, Meijima wanted to make sure that the post office had a lot of social cachet. And so what he did was that when he was looking for these postal subcontractors, he didn't pitch having a post office in your house like it would make people money. He pitched it as something honorable. He pitched it to village headmen, to uh, people in towns with a lot of social cachet, as something that had the imperture of government service. He gave uh, the people who were running these post offices the title of pseudo-government bureaucrats, which, you know, had a lot cooler sound to it. People got to say that they worked for the state, which was, I think, something of high honor at the time. And also, one of the very interesting things that Majima did is that he used the post office to start a newspaper. He had a newspaper published in Tokyo where he would encourage uh, all of the um, postmen and uh, post office workers to send him news of all of the different goings-on all throughout Japan, and he would publish it in one newspaper. The idea was to knit the country together by getting this big source of news. We take it for granted that when we read the New York Times, we don't read the New York Times for news of New York, we read the New York Times for the news of the world that we think matters. America, you know, Britain, uh, all of the current events that, you know, might impact our lives, but this is something new. And Meiji was trying to make it. He was trying to make the nation by making news, and he made the news by basically forcing uh, mail carriers and post office workers to send him interesting stories every day. So in the Japanese system, you do get something that is innovative. You do get this new kind of technology that creates new opportunities for people, that stimulates the economy. But it doesn't require an insane inventor. It doesn't require this kind of entrepreneur who, you know, partners with a bank. Instead, in this story, it requires an eccentric uh, bureaucrat who's sponsored by the government, who just has a dream of national unification. Finally, the Schumpeterian story ignores something else. It ignores the material components of economic development, what we might call the environmental inputs. Much of the history of innovation can be recast as a feedback loop between increasing technology and the widening available of natural resources. For example, the story of the steam engine that I told you a couple minutes ago could be recast as new ways of technology, steam engines that allow people to make water pumps, that allow people to dig deeper coal mines, which makes coal cheaper, as a story of technology changing natural resources prices. Um, this gets even more important when we get into the 19th century as this coal-fired steam engine turns into the petrol-fueled internal combustion engine revolution. Because the steam engine, you can get most of the stuff for the steam engine in Britain. You can get all the stuff for the steam engine in Britain. He got coal, he got iron. That's about it. But think about what you need to make the internal combustion engine development block that we live in today. First, you need oil, which as we know, does not exist everywhere on Earth. 
for a imperial power to get oil, it needs to be involved in international trade. It also needs to be involved in international politics because if your economy runs on oil, you need to ensure that you get a regular supply of oil. Furthermore, back in the 19th century, you needed rubber, which was not made synthetically, it was made from plants from jungles. Jungles that were not where the petrol was. And so you needed sources of oil and you needed sources of rubber. Furthermore, to make the steel in which, out of which cars and most of a lot of iron uh, manufacturing is made out of now, you didn't just need iron ore. You needed small amounts of exotic minerals like tin to actually make the amalgams that, iron, uh, that steel is. And this required you to go to other places. What I'm saying is, is that this internal combustion engine development block requires people to get inputs from multiple different places. And finally, think of the development block opened up by Steve Jobs. Think of the App Store world. You might think, look, innovation is no longer tied to natural resources. Innovation is driven by you know, geniuses programming stuff and making new engineering tools. But to make your cell phone, you need a bunch of incredibly rare minerals, small amounts of it. Cobalt, for instance. You need gold. You need manufacturing. You need microchips. You need programmers. The cell phone is made in so many different places that each individual has no idea where it comes from. Thanks very much for listening to Making of Historian. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tweet about us, uh, write things on Facebook, um, you know, light a votive candle in my honor. Um, thanks very much to Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. Check out the website at historian.live, um, and I will see you guys tomorrow.